This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about stouts and porters. Yes, come with us to the dark side. <laughs> We have beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were like, goodbye, dry January. Enter Stouts and Porters. Um, as always, drink responsibly. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a shout out to the Porter in Atlanta. It's one of my favorite places. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely, lovely restaurant and bar. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of Stouts and Porters. Oh, gosh. They have a lot of everything. They do. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually been really hesitant with Stouts and Porters for a long time. But every time I get one, it's Almost always a really pleasant surprise. I yeah, I forget how much I like them sometimes yeah. because I feel like they're going to be heavy, right. and some of them can be. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are just really like like just crisp and refreshing. Yeah, in a bitter way, and I'm like, girl, mm-hmm. they are surprising. I find a lot of them, at least in my case, and we're going to talk about this a little more because I know it's a pet peeve of a lot of people who make these beers. Yes, I find them <laughs> surprisingly light. I I too am like, I'm going to be drinking bread. And it's not. No, not not all the time. Not a lot of the time. I did get um, – I toured Guinness a few years ago when I was in Ireland, and it was seven floors. Very impressive. <laughs> um, and I got my perfect pour certificate. Ooh, dang. Yes. If you don't know what this is, it is a whole thing, as they say. Um, <laughs> say you're a bartender, and you're going to pour some Guinness on draft. You grab a glass – 
you tilt it under the spout at a 45 degree angle, pour until it's about 75% full, then you pause for a few seconds, let that settle, then you top it off, adding a creamy layer on the top. According to Imbibe magazine, every second of every day, somewhere around the world, a bartender pours a Guinness in this method. Guinness sometimes sends out ambassadors to teach bartenders how to do this. Yeah, and and there is, I think, a, a, a time in which yes. the perfect pint is poured. It's like 29 point something seconds. Like, yeah. there's a point. Yes. Like, there is a decimal <laughs> yes, point. there is. I was really nervous when I did it. Oh. <laughs> I was, like, shaking as if my whole reputation's at stake or something. <laughs> They'll never let me drink a Guinness again. Like, Ireland was going to call America yes. and be like, Annie is fired. Get her out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Never let her in a bar again. That did not happen. It was it was a delight, actually. And there is a myth. I I never heard this, but there's a myth that stouts and porters are made up of the much stronger sludge left at the bottom of the barrel when brewing other beer types. No, not true. Definitely not true. That's no. not that's not how brewing works. No. Which we'll get into in a second. Oh my gosh, we will. We will. We have done a couple of episodes on beer, if this is something you're really into. We've done sour beers, uh, craft beer of Asheville, Mm -hmm. and IPAs. Yeah. So see those if you care to. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And in the meanwhile, this brings us to our question. Stouts and porters. What are they? Well, uh, stouts and porters are a related family of beers that feature dark coloration and uh, roasty, rich flavors created by roasting the grains used to make them until they're uh, a rich, chocolatey brown or even darker. Mm-hmm. Okay, quick beer overview. Quick is a loose term. <laughs> um, it's all relative. It is. Beer is an alcoholic beverage made from malted grain, usually, water, and Yeast. Uh, you boil the malt in water to release its sugars, then add yeast, which eats those sugars, and poops carbon dioxide, alcohol, and flavor. Yeast poop! Oh, man, it's been a while since I've gotten to do that. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, yeah, you can also add other stuff to flavor beer, like hops, um, to balance the sweet flavors from the malt and the yeast. And most beers these days do contain some amount of hops, uh, stouts and porters included. But today... We're kind of focusing on the grains and on the malting process. And, okay, malted just means germinated and dried, meaning that you you take a grain and uh, create an environment where it will start to germinate. I mean, you know, like grains are seeds, right? They contain proteins that code for growing a plant plus starches to feed that hypothetical growth, all wrapped up in a sturdy, portable package. So, uh, given moisture and a pleasant enough temperature, a seed of grain will start to grow a plant— One of the very first steps of which is breaking down those starches into sugars for easy processing. So, when you malt grains, you're using that natural process to do some work for you, creating those sugars that you want your yeasts to eat so that they'll create alcohol. Nice. Mm -hmm. However, because you don't want a whole plant, um, you stop the germination process by drying out the grains in a process called kilning. Um, And kilning is a whole complex art slash science, but very basically, um, you can you can dry the grains out quick so that they remain pale and clean tasting, or you can do it slow and hotter 
so that the uh, the proteins and sugars in the grains undergo a couple reactions, uh, caramelization and the Maillard reaction. And uh, the, these are at work when you sear a steak or toast bread. Like, like in caramelization, uh, sugars decompose in the presence of elevated temperatures, creating all kinds of like toasty fun flavor compounds. Think like toffee or butter or jam, stone fruits, cotton candy. In the Maillard reaction, amino acids react with sugars, usually at elevated temperatures, to create all kinds of roasty fun flavor compounds. Think like toast or citrus or currants or chocolate or coffee. Mm. Yeah. Um, to control which reactions happen and how much and producing what flavors, a maltster, which is a name of a profession that you can have. Oh. Maltster. <laughs> Love it. Um, they may toast or roast the grains before drying them. Um, and that's where you get the flavors and colors of stouts and porters by, by starting with manipulating your malt or sometimes your unmalted grain. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, but the resulting malts are, are roughly categorized by color, pale, amber, brown, chocolate, black. Um, and this is also where smoky flavors can come in by using wood fires or wood smoke in the toasting, roasting, kilning process. Hmm. So uh-huh. um, the, these malts can have very powerful flavors. So usually only a small portion of the malt that goes into a stouter porter may have been toasted or roasted. Um, uh, even for like a very dark beer, like a Russian imperial stout, recipes usually only call for about 30% of the malt to be brown or black. The other 70% will be pale. Right. Mm-hmm. Shout out to uh, Martha Harbson, writing for Popular Science, for her excellent breakdown of all of these um, breakdowns. <laughs> uh, also, just out of saying, y'all, um, this episode was supposed to come out last week, and the reason that you didn't get it last week was that I was running up against the deadline and trying to understand the history of malt and ran across this article in Brew Your Own magazine. It was written by one Kristen England, and the lead of the article was, if there ever was a malt equivalent of the crazy uncle that lives under the stairs, black malt, also called black patent malt, would be it. And I just stopped, like my brain just stopped. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to need more time. I'm going to need more time on this one. Yeah. It's a very, we were very aspirational. (laughs) In, in in this episode, <laughs> combining them both. Um, and, uh, you know, here we are. I I remember this guy. I was at oh, Woody's, uh-huh. local establishment Woody's. And this guy, I was looking at the milkshakes, and they have malted milkshakes there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, I didn't know what it was. And I swear for an hour he explained to me. <laughs> Why it was superior to, to a plain milkshake? <laughs> yes. Wow. So I understand there's a lot going there's on. There's a whole lot going on. I do agree malted milkshakes are way better. If if you're listening, Kyle, with the motorcycle, <laughs> I still remember very clearly this whole wow. thing. That's so. This has clearly made an impact. It did because I, I remember thinking it was one of those moments where you're like, is this really happening? Am I asleep and dreaming? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. That's what's up. <laughs> right. Okay. Back to the beer. Yes. Uh, so, yes. Anyway, um, the result of all of this will be a beer that's dark brown to black in color with a roasty and toasty flavors, ranging from dry to sweet in flavor, um, from, from very low alcohol to very high alcohol content, um, but usually with low hop content and uh, thus 
less bitterness than a lot of other beers or like a different variety of bitterness from burnt flavors instead of like like grapefruit juice. Like you kind of get pine or grapefruit from, a, from something like an IPA that has a lot of hops. This is more like a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And here I, I, I need to – we need to talk about nitrogen. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, uh, because some stouts and porters, like Guinness, um, employ nitrogen to give the beer a creamier mouthfeel and, uh, and that thick, foamy head. Um, because, okay, most beers contain carbon dioxide to give them fizz. It's also a natural result of uh, fermentation. But you can also add nitrogen, which creates tiny little bubbles as opposed to carbon dioxide's, like, big, snappy bubbles. Um, Nitrogen is also less soluble than carbon dioxide. So instead of a continuing fizz that you get with CO2, you get this rush of, of nitrogen escape. And this is why, also thanks to some complex fluid dynamics, the bubbles in a pint of Guinness um, or other nitro beer will, will settle down the sides of a glass and then rise up from the center to form that foamy head over the course of a few seconds. Um, also, since the gas in the beer will be a blend of CO2 and nitrogen, heavy on the nitrogen, maybe like 70%, you wind up with a, with a relatively still glass of beer once the bubbles have settled into that foam. To maximize that effect, you need to help the nitrogen nucleate, which is why nitrogenized beers are poured from special tap faucets that slow and agitate the pour, and it's why canned and bottled nitro beers contain a widget or some other oh, specialized that design that seeds the nitrogen bubbles. Yeah, and oh. we will have to talk more about that some other time. It's really cool, weird fluid dynamics and, uh, and uh, seeding of the bubble nucleation, so it's wild. Yeah, I a couple of years ago I had one of those canned Guinness drafts. Sure, yeah. And it had I was like something's in here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the widget. Yeah, I did, and I was like what the <laughs> All right, mystery solved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. V- very basically what's happening with the widget is that um uh it's attached to the to the pulley tab of the can and uh and it releases this burst of nitrogen into the beer when you open the can mm-hmm. um which seeds nucleation of the bubbles. Very cool. Very basically, I'm probably screwing that up <laughs> a little bit in the telling. But <laughs> in, in that general ballpark. Yes. Got it. Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Huh. There are a lot of varieties <laughs> of porters and stouts um, with different things added during the brewing process to play with the resulting flavors. Uh, oatmeal stouts are brewed with oats in addition to barley, as you might imagine. Um, mm-hmm. Milk stouts include lactose, which are milk sugars to add sweetness and a kind of creaminess. Yeah. Didn't we discuss <clears throat> how we both thought that they <laughs> like we had never put together that, that that's why? That that's why. Yep. Yep. I had no idea until like <laughs> a few weeks ago. Yeah, me too. I thought it was just because they were kind of... Because they're creamy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, they're creamy for a reason. Exactly. Derp. Yep. <sighs> um, oyster stouts uh, include whole oyster shells during brewing to get some of those minerals in there. Um, you can add coffee or peanuts or cinnamon or whatever you like. You can age your stout or porter in bourbon barrels to add those flavors to the mix. Um, imperial stouts and Baltic porters are styles with stronger flavors and higher alcohol content. There's a whole world out there. Oh, my heck, there is. Yes. So, important question, mm-hmm. sub-question, question two. Yes. What's the difference between a stout and a porter? Shrug emoji? <laughs> That's essentially the difference. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. sums it up. Yeah, these days, 
Yeah, like not much. Um, the two terms are used pretty interchangeably by different brewers within this family of beers. Um, official designations tend to include the word creamy in Stout's description and not in Porter's description. Some modern brewers define Stout's as containing unmalted roasted barley in addition to or instead of the usual malted roasted barley that porters use. But even that isn't industry-wide. Yeah, and people are very passionate and opinionated about it, which is funny. They certainly are. <laughs> if you would like to read about this argument on the internet, Google it. Oh, yeah. And so many it's humans will give you their opinion. Pages and pages and pages of it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's a popular story that the name Porter came from the fact that Porters of London loved this beer type so much way back when it first got started, or that it somehow derived from entire butt. Okay, all right, that that is from the type of cask that may have been used to mature porters in the early 1700s. The story goes that dark beers were then made by combining multiple beers made during, like, successive mashings over the course of an entire brewing run and matured in these casks that were known as butts. So the beer may have been called entire butt beer before it took on the name porter. Um, I'm not sure whether this is apocryphal or not, though. Partially because it's just, I'm, I, I know I'm like 12, but like entire butt beer <laughs> yes. is so funny. Yes, and I'm trying to imagine where porter would come from that. From that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe the accent was very different back then. <laughs> we don't know. That's true. I wasn't there. Yes. One thing, giving credence to this theory that porters are named for porters, is in a 1726 letter written by a man living in London, quote, another kind of beer is called porter, meaning carrier, because the greater quantity of this beer is consumed by the working classes. It is a thick and strong beverage, and the effect it produces, if drunk in excess, is the same as that of wine. This porter costs three pence a pot. That letter is the first known instance of the word porter in print. It is indeed. Mm -hmm. As for stout, that might be because high-gravity porters were frequently called stout porters in the late 17 and early 1800s, and from there, stout became a descriptor for a good dark beer. And yeah, stout. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's stout meaning, like, strong. Um, right. The antonym was sometimes a slender beer or small beer to mean uh, low-alcohol beer, um, and yeah, at the time, the only difference in recipes for stouts versus porters was often the amount of water involved. Like, less was used for stouts, so they would be stronger. Um, but these days, porters can be stronger than stouts. It's Fun. Like a, a reverse history mystery. Yeah. <laughs> A present mystery. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> Doesn't rhyme, not as fun. We'll, work, we'll workshop that. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> Another theory suggests that porter derived from a beer that came to Britain from the Netherlands called porter, which dates back to the 14th century. And yeah, both of these were considered beers for the working classes. Like porter also means a person who hauls or delivers um, things. Yeah. Um, and these are also dark beers with roasty flavors, though I get the idea that they tend to be um, on the sweeter side of the porter spectrum, like to this day. Hmm. Okay, cool. Still exist. Oh, yeah. That's always a pleasant. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Go test that out. <laughs> Speaking of testing that out, uh, what about nutrition? Drink responsibly. Always. Um, generally, uh, the lower the alcohol content of a beer, the fewer calories it will contain, meaning that Guinness, at 4.1% alcohol by volume, is actually one of the lightest beers you can drink outside of things that are, like, brewed specifically to be low calorie. Um, like, Corona is 46 A Bud is 5%. 
Yeah, so, this blew my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, that's a that's certainly a factor. But certainly those roasty flavors can also, like, really mask the taste of higher volumes of alcohol. So some porters and stouts are exactly as heavy as they look. Mm-hmm. Drink responsibly yet yes. again. Mm-hmm. 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 Water is always good. Oh, gosh, yeah, just have some water. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. We do have a little bit, some numbers for you. Uh, a couple, yeah. As of 2017, a porters occupied a small percentage of the American beer market share, just 0.3%. Um, but they were on the rise. Sales had increased um, by 0.7% over the course of the year. Stouts also had a good year. They grew to 1.1% of the overall market, and uh, sales rose by 4%. Yes, um, they are definitely, I feel like they're on the, as we're in this craft beer renaissance mm-hmm. here in the U.S. and in other places, they're kind of on the tail end of that. Like, education is still happening with lighter beers, and, and as we're going to talk about, Stouts and Porters pretty much disappeared for, for a, a minute. For a long time, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like, we've we've gone through the, the IPA craze right. and the sour craze. Right. So I'm wondering, maybe... Maybe Stats and Porters are next. It sounds like they might be. It sounds like they might be. Oh, but before we get to that, we have a lot of history for we you. We do. <laughs> um, and first, we've got a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Okay, here we go. Uh Uh-huh. This is a big history section. And it took a little bit of untangling because... uh, 
as with anything that people like talking about so much and also as with anything from which like a lot of the early history was not recorded because yeah. no one thought it was important. Right. Um, there's a lot of weird apocryphal stories out there. Yes, which are a delight. Yes, and we will get to a number of them. <laughs> we will, we will, and we'll try to make clear which ones are apocryphal <laughs> and which ones are not. <laughs> or at least from the best that we could understand. Yes, yes. So, all right. Porters go back to London circa the 18th century, the first industrially produced beer, in part because brewers began taking aging and maturation into their own hands. Uh, the use of thermometers in the 1760s also helped. Before that, beer was mostly brewed in homes or it was brewed with the intent it would age on the journey to wherever it was going. Right. One popular story goes that porters were invented out of a practice wherein London bartenders commonly blended three beers for customers, a mix of cheaper and more expensive beers with different characteristics. In the 1720s and 30s, a brewer named Ralph Harwood decided he wanted to brew a beer with that mix of characteristics, but that could be dispensed from one cask. Londoners loved it, and it became the new it thing. However, there aren't really records to back this off-repeated story. It's called the three threads theory. If you do any research of your own after this, you will see that in a lot of places. Three threads theory. Yeah. 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 Probably apocryphal. Probably. Porters were definitely being enjoyed by 1730 when the Grub Street Journal wrote highly of a, quote, sound, generous porter, without further explanation. Yep. <laughs> That's it. And early American homebrewers, once America became a thing, really dug porters, including folks like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, as usual. As always. Mm-hmm. Russian porters and stouts emerged around the same time that the British variety did, imported from England. Russian beer houses were even frequently called porter houses. It was viewed as a fancy beer on the same level as wine. However, what porter exactly entailed at this time is a bit murky. Uh -huh. <laughs> because to make a porter in our current understanding of them, you need that black malt, something that didn't exist until innovations in malt roasting technologies in 1817 and the black patent malt. Yeah, the, the story of the porter's development is a story of malt, which is also a story of heating technology. Um, for most of beer's history, you had malt ranging from pale to amber to brown. Uh, before black malts were invented, dark beers, like porters, employed brown malts, um, heated to a, to a good toasty color with a wood or charcoal fire. Which imparted a smokiness. To let that smoky flavor mellow out involved a months-long aging process in wooden casks or vats, allowing for the propagation of wild yeast. Meaning these original porters were quite different than the porters of today and probably way more filling. Porters were viewed as a working person's drink and even seen as nutritious. Yeah, mostly sweet styles were made at the time, um, brewed to have a lower alcohol content and more residual sugar. So they were higher in calories and would give you a little, little boost to energy. Mm -hmm. um, part of the reason there probably is that brown malts would have added this um, astringency to the beer that not all drinkers really favor. Right. And I said brown malts, but um, but most brewers were probably using a blend of brown and amber malts because that um, extra cooking process made brown malt more expensive than paler malts at the time. Ah. Uh. Yes. But that was going to change. What? Ah! Mm. Starting around the early 1700s, um, maltsters, gosh, I love that word, maltsters <laughs> uh, started working with a new fuel called coke, 
Uh, folks working with coal had derived it back in the 1600s, and it burned hotter and cleaner than anything anyone had ever used before. It drove industrial development um, from iron to steel to glass and also made its way into brewing. Using this, malt could be finished without so much smoke. Um, it was paler and tasted cleaner than malts roasted with wood or whatever. The resulting pale malts and pale ales that they produced were more expensive but very posh um, and let the flavor of any hops you added shine through more clearly as we discussed in our IPA episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is part of how porters came to be considered working-class beers versus those posh pale ales developing around the same time. Oh, uh, speaking of those vats that they would age porters in, though. Oh, yes. Here's a story. In 1795, brewer Richard Meux, um, I believe it's Meux, constructed the largest vat in existence, and it became something of a celebrity vat. Okay. People were writing about it. It could hold up to 20,000 barrels. But tragedy struck in October 1814 when a corroded hoop burst, releasing 7,600 barrels of porter. What? flooding the basement, destroying the brewery walls, and surging into nearby houses. Eight people were killed due to, quote, drowning, injury, poisoning by porter, or drunkenness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, I forget sometimes how dangerous brewing can be, even today. Oh, absolutely. Even today. It's a it's a chemistry experiment all the way. It is. Well, adding in something else extremely childish, because that's <laughs> the theme of this episode, just want to mention... In this article, I found a brewer named Richard Ramsbottom. 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 (laughs) That is a spectacular name. It is. And I'm glad that it exists. I am too. Okay, if we step back to 1755 and pivot to stout, Samuel Johnson referred to stout as a slang word for strong beer in the Dictionary of the English Language. It wasn't uncommon for beer inventories to list both pale stouts and brown stouts at the time. Mm -hmm. But since porters were the thing back then, brewers started expanding their portfolio by offering higher-gravity stout porters. And so, the story goes, the porter part was eventually dropped so that they were just called stouts. The recipes for porters and stouts were virtually the same, again, other than stouts calling for less water. In 1803, the Times of London reported on a case over stolen contents from a cask of, quote, porter of superior quality called brown stout, called in court remarkably fine old porter and very strong and excellent brown stout. So both terms, same beer. Yes. Cool. Uh, Always making it easy for us. (laughs) (laughs) In 1810s, a general dictionary of commerce, trade, and manufacturers, quote, porter may be divided into two classes, namely brown stout and porter properly so-called. Brown stout is only a fuller-bodied kind of porter than that which serves for ordinary drinking. A great deal of this is exported to America and the West Indies. Huh. So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Ooh, in 1759, a man named Arthur Guinness, and yes, that one, Mm -hmm. leased a brewery at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland for 9,000 years. (laughs) I had never heard this before, and I love it. Yes, this is a big part of their tour. Yeah. The location was strategic with accessible fresh water and the country's barley growing areas all pretty close. Since porters and stouts were the popular styles at the time, that's what Guinness went with, 
decade later, in 1769, Guinness's stouts were being exported to England, and by 1799, Guinness decided to focus solely on porters and stouts. Originally, their product went by the name Extra Stout Porter, but in 1820, they dropped the porter. Extra Stout. Extra Stout. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. According to their website, after the death of Prince Albert in 1861, a bartender in London decided that champagne was too bright a drink for the occasion, so he added some Guinness. Thus, the black velvet was born. Ah, We could have done a whole episode on Guinness. They have... Oh, certainly. Yeah. That can still happen at some point. I, I was trying to remember what episode we talked about where they... They had they had somebody invent refrigeration. They were like, we need this thing for beer. For brewing. Go invent it. <laughs> and I, 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 too, ran out of time, but it, maybe one day we'll return. Sure. When Edward Cecil took over in 1868, he doubled the size of the brewery to the point it was nicknamed a city within a city, complete with its own medical department, fire brigade, and railway. Wow. And they established their first... Research lab in 1901. Huh. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, we need to talk about an innovation that Guinness made great use of, black malt. All right, I'm ready. So there was this guy, Daniel Wheeler, a British engineer. And in the 1810s, he was inspired by the way coffees were roasted in revolving metal drums. This kept smoke out of the product and let you dry it more evenly and to a more precise finish. He applied for a patent for his improved method of drying and preparing malt in 1817. And this is what allowed the creation of lots of different styles of beer, uh, cleaner pale ales, roastier porters, all kinds of things in between. Um, Because before this, um, if you cooked malt too hard, it would go past brown to charcoal and just catch on fire in your kiln. Oh, no. Bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, But with this new process, you could cook malt or straight barley or whatever all the way to black without setting anything unintentionally on fire. (laughs) That's good. Yes. That's an improvement. (laughs) I I like intentional fires better than We've all been there. Valentine's Day is coming up. We know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure that the term uh, patent malt arose for black malt because there was a patent on the process. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this dropped the price of pale malts and allowed brewers a lot of leeway and precision in creating darker beers. Guinness was an early adopter. Um, By 1828, they had entirely replaced brown malt with black malt in their recipe. Smart. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to another innovation. In the 1790s, an English chemist by the name of William Nicholson developed um, a practical and affordable hydrometer, um, which is a device that measures the density of a fluid, which is useful in brewing um, because the density of beer is directly related to its sugar and alcohol content. Um, So using hydrometers in the early 1800s, brewers realized that paler malts gave off more sugars than darker roasted malts, um, meaning that the yeasts have more food, meaning that you can make a stronger beer using less malt. Um, So coupled with Wheeler's new kilning method, this innovation meant that brewers were coming up with all kinds of new recipes. Right. Some mid-19th century brewers in Ireland used up to 97% pale malt in their stouts and porters. Complicating all of this, as with a lot of alcohols we've discussed in the past, some less-than-reputable brewers added all kinds of additives, especially for color, but also some pretty dangerous things. 
Yeah, I mean, some of these things were nicer than others, like uh, things involving like boiling down leftover wort, which is uh, unfermented beer soup, um, or caramelizing sugar, or roasting unused malt hulls. Um, but yeah, there were also brewers using less wholesome things, and so there was this general public push against any any adulterations. Period. Right. Yeah. During the later half of the 19th century, records show that the recipes for stouts and porters in London began to diverge, with stouts getting less patent malt as compared to porters. There's a popular myth that Ireland embraced the stout and unmalted barley to evade a British tax on malted barley. However, unmalted barley was illegal in both Ireland and Britain until 1880. Uh, Guinness today does use unmalted barley in their recipe. Aha. Yeah. During the Great Famine from 1845 to 1849, many Irish immigrants arrived to the United States and they brought their beer preferences with them. Some historians believe that this is how stouts got associated with the Irish in America and in particular Guinness. Britain's Free Mash Ton Act of 1880 permitted the use of roasted barley, although folks weren't super into it at first. It also required brewers to purchase a brewing license and shifted taxation from malt to original gravity, which is ah. a way of... Yeah, this is another rabbit hole, (laughs) which is a way of predicting the alcohol content of the final product based on the fermentable and unfermentable substances in the wort before fermentation. Cool. Yes. Yes. Great. Mm -hmm. Also of note, by this point, the oatmeal stout was common, but soon milk stout passed it in popularity and almost led to the oatmeal stout's extinction. Yeah, um, milk stouts are sweeter, and at the time, they contained milk added during fermentation oh. and were marketed as being, like, healthy or um, or restorative. Um, they are also considered easier on the palate because they're less bitter than drier stouts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a late 19th century high-sugar, low-alcohol sweet stout called Invalid Stout was marketed as essentially a health drink. Some breweries marketed their porters even to nursing mothers and the ill. Yeah, uh, breweries often promoted stouts as, like, heavy and healthy and nutritious through World War II. Uh, famously, the Guinness is Good for You campaign in the 1920s. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> The mid to late 19th and early 20th century was around the time the porter encountered some serious hardship. Once the most popular beer in the U.K. and the U.S., dark beers took a huge hit when Pilsner came along in 1842 and Pale Ale a little bit before that to a lesser extent. Um, yeah, all that, all that work in controlling the malting process allowed for pale beers with different flavor profiles to develop and simultaneously – more work was being done to understand yeasts. Um, a lot of beers throughout history wound up with a sour, barney, weird flavors from wild yeasts and bacteria that got into them, but no one knew that microbes are what causes those flavors until, like, the middle of the 1800s, even though brewers had, like, figured out ways to help control for them, certainly by the 1700s. But, uh, yeah, uh, Louis Pasteur figured out that it wasn't some weird chemical process, but rather a biological process around 1856. Um, He discovered that yeast is a living organism and that different yeasts produce different flavors. Um, He was commissioned by folks in the wine industry to figure out why their booze was going sour. We might not have pasteurization if not for booze. What do you know? Ah. (laughs) So, yeah, so he developed pasteurization, which is the process of of heating stuff for the right amount of time and at the right temperature so that you kill off any microbes without, like, ruining the stuff. Right. But uh, it wasn't until the experiments in Carlsberg's laboratories in the 1880s that anyone isolated and cultivated 
pure yeast strains that would produce alcohol with, like, really reliable flavors. So between these two innovations, the beer world exploded with all of these super light, super clean-tasting beers. Yes. Not so great news for stouts importers. Yes. Another thing, not so great news. <laughs> Prohibition. Oh, yeah, that thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, 1920s America. And, and those taxes, uh, aforementioned taxes on uh, British taxes around original gravity, didn't help either. Although World War I and malt restrictions lightened up the porter closer to what we're more used to today. Um, yeah, that's because the, the UK government limited the alcohol content of English beers during wartime because they were trying to conserve grain stores. So less grain, less alcohol content. However, they were not so prohibitive in Ireland, perhaps to avoid angering the Irish, uh, meaning Ireland could keep churning out porters and stouts while the British really couldn't. Post-war, when the restrictions were dropped, many British brewers decided to turn their focus elsewhere, ditching porters and stouts, except for the popular, the still popular sweeter milk stout variety. But that meant there was this beer vacuum, and Ireland happily stepped in to fill it. Meanwhile, that other famous thing that Guinness makes, the Guinness Book of Records, um, got its start in 1954. The story goes that the then managing director of Guinness Brewery um, won Sir Hugh Beaver, which is another great name. That is an excellent name. Oh, Hugh Beaver. Um, Yeah, he attended this hunting party out in Wexford. And um, during that hunting party, there was this friendly argument about what the fastest game bird in Europe is. Um, And the party failed to find an answer in any of the host's reference books. So Sir Hugh got the idea to promote Guinness with a book meant to help settle pub arguments. And that book morphed into the Guinness World Records that we know and we frequently reference today. Yep. Their website has the answer to that original question, by the way. Um, The fastest game bird in Europe is the golden plover. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. The golden plover. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that is very enriching. My Patronus <laughs> is a swift, and that is the highest plastifying bird, but I guess it's not a game bird. Not so. a game bird, so yeah. Different thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In 1959, to celebrate 200 years of brewing, Guinness dropped 150,000 bottles in the Atlantic Ocean. Inside the bottles were a variety of things, like instructions on how to make the bottle into a lamp, <laughs> Guinness's story, a gold Guinness label, and a certificate for the office of the King of Neptune. Oh, yeah. All right. They've done some really interesting marketing campaigns, that is for sure. Yes. Oh, but also in 1959. Yes, a scientist employed by Guinness named Michael Ash came up with the Guinness Surge and Settle, the world's first nitro beer. As America emerged from the dark cocktail times of the 80s, <laughs> new brewers looking to revive porters and stouts turned to the UK for inspiration, but they were only able to find about three dozen stouts. Three dozen stouts being produced in all of England, and most of those were the sweet stout variety, which had by then earned the death knell of a nickname, Old Fashioned Lady Drink. Oh, no. 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 One event did help bring back porters and stouts when English brewery Samuel Smith combined forces with an importer for Washington State's Merchant Devin named Charles Finkel to recreate the oatmeal stout specifically to sell to Americans. 
Finkel grew interested in them after discovering vintage labels proclaiming their healthfulness. He went to then-beer authority Michael Jackson, the beer hunter, um, wondering if he had tried one. Jackson hadn't, but he gave Finkel his suggestions or ideas on what it might have tasted like, and Finkel passed those notes on to Samuel Smith. The resulting product laid the foundation for what we now call traditional-style oatmeal stouts. Huh. And yeah, as we were going through this craft beer revival here in the U.S. and other parts, um, porters and stouts are very much part of that. And I know some breweries specifically are trying to educate people and focus on them yeah, uh, and and bring them back. And there's festivals around them. And I know some do like a whole stout lineup or whole porter lineup. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. I'm glad – I'm glad that it's making a comeback. It is absolutely, yeah. Um, the 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 thing that the like the like phrase that I ran across a lot in doing this research was like people just going like, if you like coffee, you're gonna like porters and stouts. Mm-hmm. It's the same flavors. Yeah, they they're not necessarily heavy. They are quite delightful. They are. If you if you haven't tried any, try one. Yes, or if you had a bad experience, maybe give it another go. Yeah. If you want. If you want, do what you want. (laughs) Don't take our advice. No. (laughs) Unless you want to. (laughs) Sure. Do what you want. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I feel like, you know, that was a massive endeavor, but we, there was something cobbled together. Yeah. That's, that's the rise and the fall and the rise yet again of, of the Porter and Stout. Porter and Stout. Resurrection. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we do have a little bit more for you. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with... I don't know any drinking songs. Huh? Well, we can fix that. Well, no, I know the one from Lord of the Rings, but that says more about me than perhaps I wanted to say. (laughs) Annie, everyone already knew that about you. (laughs) It's true. Why am I hiding from myself? (laughs) Sam wrote, I listened to the Black Eyed Pea episode this morning while at the blood bank. For two hours straight. I get a lot of pod listening done then, I bet. You mentioned the Carolina low country dish Hop and John, but somehow you admitted it's relative Limpin Katie, which switches out the rice for hominy. Another dish akin to these is Limpin Susan, which involves rice, okra, and bacon. Eating black-eyed peas is my pleasure alone in our house, as my wife doesn't like them. I'm still working to convince my son they're worth eating. Ah. Hang in there. I, I, a lot of things I didn't like when I was a kid, I came around to. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. My dad loved hominy. I don't know how I, I didn't come across this ever, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my grandmother loves it. Um, she always ate canned, though, so I didn't like it until, like, very recently. Mm-hmm. Huh. Cans, am I right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I liked canned food, but I was an interesting child. <laughs> in 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 some cases, it can it can lend uh, a texture quality that is pleasant, and yes. in other cases, I find that is not accurate yeah. to my experience. I I feel that is a fair assessment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Steph wrote. I was listening to your Pineapple Redux episode and was reminded of a pineapple-related experience that I had in Thailand about a year ago. My then-fiancé, now-husband, congratulations, and I were in Chiang Mai in December 2018. I'm a huge fan of tropical fruits, pineapple in particular, and so was on the lookout for any street vendors selling pineapples. I was delighted to find pineapples of all sorts there, ranging from teeny tiny pineapples that were no taller than the length of my hand, crown included, and large pineapples with comically small crowns. I can't remember which type of pineapple I bought from the vendor, but I do remember that it was the sweetest pineapple I had ever tasted. It was incredible. I was so happy. I had found my new favorite fruit. After that, I decided I would buy some cut pineapple from a street vendor at least once a day during the rest of our time there. I think it was our third day there after eating my daily dose of cut pineapple that I thought, wow, these pineapples are so sweet. They're almost too sweet, like unnaturally sweet. I started getting a little suspicious and even tried searching on Google and TripAdvisor for any accounts of street vendors sweetening cut fruit in Thailand. I wasn't able to find anything, but that thought still gnawed at me. That night, on our way to a night market, we passed by a vendor selling fresh-cut pineapple. We noticed that as he was cutting them, he placed them in a tub of water. I'd assumed it was some solution they used to keep the cut fruit fresh and prevent them from browning, but now I thought maybe there was something more to it than that— The vendor didn't speak much English, so I couldn't ask him what the liquid was, but we found out that he could speak Mandarin due to a recent influx of Chinese tourists after a popular Chinese film was shot there. This is where my husband came in, being a Mandarin speaker himself. He asked what he was putting the cut pineapple in, and the vendor told him it was sugar water. My husband then asked why he did that, and he answered, because otherwise they wouldn't be sweet, as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) 
sadly, my Thai pineapple bubble was burst, and I didn't buy any more pineapples from street vendors the rest of our stay in Chiang Mai. Though I'm glad we were able to solve that mystery, part of me wishes I had never asked the question and just stayed in blissful ignorance, because it just meant I ate less pineapple than I would have on that trip. This reminds me of the scene in The Matrix when Cypher is eating the steak and it looks so good. Yeah. And he knows it's not real, but he bites into it and he says, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's a bummer. That is a bummer. That is a bummer. Or I don't know if it was delicious. I mean, it yeah. It was delicious. It's true. If you liked it, sweet and pineapple. But you got to weigh, you know. You do. You do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to find your own pineapple truth. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> uh, words of wisdom. Words to live by. And we owe it to these listeners yes. and to you and your quick wit, Lauren. <laughs> um, if you, <laughs> thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.